You are listening to the sermon podcast of Connection Church, a gospel-centered community on a mission to make much of Jesus in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. For more information, visit SiouxFallsConnection.com. Thank you for listening. I get the privilege to invite you to welcome with me and, and, and even introduce to you uh, a, a, a person I love dearly and, and means a lot in, a, in the life of our church, whether you realize it or not. You, if you were around about a year, year and a half ago, you saw some update videos from church planters that we support directly. And so, uh, so th- this is pretty exciting for us. We, we are delighted to be a part of God's mission in multiplying disciples, but also multiplying gospel communities that exist for the sake of these neighborhoods and our city, but then multiply churches in our region and around the globe. And and so when you give and invest in all that God is doing in and through the life of Connection Church, you're giving to seeing that gospel multiply here in our city and beyond. And so uh, one of the church planters we've been privileged to, to partner with and support financially is Hope City Church in Bismarck. They planted about a year ago. You'll hear a, bit, a little bit more about that. And today, if you don't have if you haven't done this already, I get to introduce you to Chris and Christy Wallace, and you'll get a chance to meet them before you leave. And so I want to welcome Chris up to the stage. He's going to open God's word and encourage us through it and, and just affirm him in the, in the ways that he has been an encouragement to me. I'm delighted for the opportunity that he'll be the same kind of encouragement to us this morning. So do me, do me a favor and join me in, in welcoming Chris Wallace. Well, good morning, guys. Good morning. So glad and excited to be here with you. Uh, I can't tell you how excited we are. Uh, It's our first time to be here. We've wanted to come long before now. Uh, This is our first opportunity. Uh, So excited to be here to open God's word with you. Uh, Just share a quick word uh, about me and my family since we're total strangers. Let's get to know each other real quick. Uh, My name is Chris Wallace, uh, married to my best friend, Christy. Do we have that picture? So this is Christy. Uh, Love love her. We've been married for about 13 years. We have two children, Josiah, who is 10, and Lily, who is 9. Such an awesome family that God has, has given me. Uh, About two years ago, God called me and my family to pack everything we own up in a U-Haul and drive across the country to Bismarck, North Dakota to plant a church. And there's a lot of details I won't get into today, uh, but it was a crazy adventure uh, that God began for us of making disciples in Bismarck, North Dakota. Uh, And if you're thinking the question now, (laughs) Bismarck. (laughs) <laughs> what is that? So we were originally born and raised in Memphis, Tennessee, and uh, just through God's sovereignty and through providential relationships and, and moments, the Lord led us to Bismarck. Uh, we visited one time, and we fell in love with this city. We love the people of Bismarck, North Dakota. We feel like it's our home. Uh, from the first time we stepped foot there, we felt like this is the place we were born to be. Uh, and we, So we love these people. We serve them. We're making disciples there. Uh, we started in January. Uh, We started our first public gathering. We had about 20 of us. Um, Praise the Lord over the course of the year. We're at about 50 now. Uh, Just slowly continuing to just pour the gospel into people's lives and seeing God change lives. And it is so awesome uh, to be a part of that. Uh, So I want to say just a couple things. First of all, I want to say thank you to Jonathan Land. Um, I don't know if you guys know how awesome your pastor is. Um, I mean, just an incredible man of God. Uh, One of the most perceptive uh, and just clear, like, 
gospel-centered people that I've ever known. And over the past year, um, we've been going through this Acts 29 process, which um, you may or may not know much about it, but uh, he has been such a blessing to me and coaching me and just pouring his time and energy into me to develop me more as a pastor and as a church planter. So I am so grateful uh, for your pastor. He is an incredible man of God, and so I hope you know that. So first of all, I, I thank Jonathan for his partnership, and then I want to say thank you on behalf of Hope City Church to each and every one of you. Uh, you are an amazing church. Your commitment to the gospel, to community, and to mission, uh, it is absolutely incredible. You don't just talk it. You live it in reality. And we are, uh, we are proof of that. Uh, your generosity is, is changing lives in Bismarck, and I hope that you know that. Uh, and it's so exciting to see what God's doing and to think this would not be possible without faithful, kingdom-minded churches like Connection Church. So thank you on behalf of our family, on behalf of Hope City Church. You guys rock. So today's our first Sunday since we started in January to be gone from Hope City. And so we have a guy I've been pouring into for almost two years, and this is like his game day. Uh, so we're out, and uh, he has to do everything. Uh, and his name is Daniel, uh, and I just, I love this guy so much. If you'd be okay with it, I'd love to just pray for them. Our service is beginning right now. Uh, and I just, as they're beginning that gathering there, I'd love to just pray for them together and get you to pray with me. Uh, and then we'll dive into the message this morning. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the incredible things you're doing in Sioux Falls, in Bismarck, across the globe, that your kingdom is not a local kingdom, it is a global kingdom that's constantly advancing in the name of Jesus, is constantly going out and lives are being changed. And I, I thank you this morning for your faithfulness. Uh, thank you for Connection Church. Thank you for Pastor Jonathan. Thank you for the way they've supported what you're doing in Bismarck. And we pray for Hope City this morning. We pray for Daniel and for the other leadership. And God, we pray that you would use them this morning to do a mighty work, that you would speak through them, that you would work through them to continue to change lives and continue to bring people to Christ and to help them grow in him. So God, would you be with them in a mighty way and help me to rest uh, uh, and that you are doing a mighty work there today that's not dependent on me. Father, thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for what you're going to do and speak this morning. Would you have your way now as we turn our eyes onto your word? God, as we turn our attention and our ears, God, would you open them? Teach us. Give us understanding. And most importantly, God, would you show us Christ this morning? We pray that in his name. Amen. Well, if you guys have your copy of the scriptures this morning, we'll be in Mark chapter 2, verse 1 through 12. Uh, if you have a digital device or a good old-fashioned paper Bible, if you don't have a Bible, there's a Bible underneath your seat, one of the blue Bibles. You can find me there, Matthew, Mark. We'll be in that second gospel in the New Testament. So we've been going through the Gospel of Mark uh, at Hope City uh, for the past couple months, uh, and I have enjoyed this journey so much. The Gospel of Mark is all about this one central question. Who do you say that Jesus Christ is? Who do you say that Jesus Christ is? In the middle of the book, there's this section where Jesus asks his disciples, who do people say that I am? They say, some people say John the Baptist, some people say Elijah, some people say one of the prophets, but then Jesus looks at them and he's like, okay, that's fair, but who do you say that I am? And that is one of the most important questions you will ever encounter in your entire life, is who do you say that Jesus Christ is? 
Not who does your best friend say he is. Not who does the church say he is. Not who does your mom say he is. Who do you say that Jesus Christ is? And in the Gospel of Mark, he spends the first eight chapters unpacking that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, through his message and ministry. So we see Jesus preach and heal and cast out demons. And again and again, he's proclaimed as the one true king, the Messiah. And then the last eight chapters in Mark, he, he shows us through the suffering and the sacrifice and the resurrection of Jesus that he is this one true king. And it's all centered on that question of who is Jesus? So verse 1 of chapter 1, Mark unleashes the, the answer right from the beginning. And he goes after it from verse 1 all the way to the end of the book that Jesus is the true Savior King, the divine Son of God who came to save sinners. And if there's anything I could say about the Gospel of Mark is that every passage has one purpose. That's that you would encounter Christ. That every passage of this book, that you would encounter something about who Christ is and what he's done in a way that leaves you different. So my prayer for you this morning, my prayer for myself this morning, is that you would encounter Jesus in a powerful way. That you don't leave here the same way that you came in. So join me here in verse 1 in chapter 2 of Mark's Gospel. Mark writes this, And when he returned to Capernaum, after some days, it was reported that he was at home, and many were gathered together, so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there, questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. This is God's word for God's people. Amen. I want to ask you guys a question. What do you want more than anything else? What do you want more than anything else? I mean, that thing like deep in your soul, what do you want? I don't mean like a cheeseburger or like a different color car. I mean like what's that one thing? If I get this, if I have this in my life, I'm going to be okay. I'm going to be able to make it if I get this one thing. I want you to just think about that. What is that? What is your one thing? I love uh, C.S. Lewis, and one of my favorite essays by him is called The Weight of Glory. Uh, and he has this fantastic quote I want to share with you uh, from that essay. It says this, And our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. 
We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. Lewis's point is that too often in our lives, when we think about those things that we want, the things that like, that's what's going to make my life right. That's what's going to make me whole. That's what's going to make me happy. That's what's really going to satisfy me. Lewis's point is too often those things are shallow. Too often those things are temporary and fleeting things that don't ultimately satisfy and, and in reality, we don't understand our real need and, and what the gospel actually offers to us, the unimaginably great offer of the gospel through Jesus Christ. And because of that, it's not that we want too much, it's that we don't want enough for ourselves. And this morning in our text, there's a man that comes to Jesus and he's desperate. And he's got this one thing on his mind. And if I get this one thing, everything's going to be different. He's a paralytic. If, if, I, if I get healed, if I can walk, everything for me is going to change. He's got this one thing. And what we see in this moment is Jesus kind of flips this whole moment around and does something very unexpected. Um, and so here we see that Jesus uh, is, does something really unexpected and reveals something incredibly powerful about who he is and what he came to do. And so let's dive into this text, uh, starting at verse 1, make our way through it, uh, and show you some fantastic, awesome things about who Jesus is. So starting in verse 1, it says, And when he returned to Capernaum, after some days, it was reported that he was at home. So back in chapter 1, Jesus uh, begins his ministry, and he begins preaching. Uh, and as he's preaching and casting out demons and beginning to heal, word spreads very quickly about him. I mean, people, people are spreading it very, very far and wide, and Jesus begins to, to get a following. People are coming from all over the place to see him, to hear him. What's he doing? Who is this person? What on earth is going on? Uh, and so it gets so busy that Jesus has to actually like leave and, and go to some desolate places, get away from the crowds. Uh, and as he tries to get away, go to other towns, man, it just continues. The fame, the, the hype, it's spreading. and More and more people want to see this, this person who's coming out, who's, who's teaching like nobody else has ever taught, who's healing and casting out demons. What is this? And so it tells us here, verse 1, that he comes back to Capernaum after some days. Maybe it's been a week. Maybe it's been a few weeks, a few months. The text doesn't tell us. It just says after some days. And it was, it was reported that he was at home. So most likely Jesus lived uh, at the house of Simon Peter at this time. Most scholars agree with that. And so he's back home here. And as soon as Jesus gets home, it's not like, oh, it's been busy. I just want to like kick back. No, what does it say in verse 2? And many were gathered. As soon as they hear about Jesus' home, they're like, we got to go. Let's go. And so they start telling all their friends, shooting all the messages out. Social media is blowing up. Everybody comes together. They're like, Jesus is back at his house. Let's go. This is our chance to see him, to hear him. Let's go. So in verse 2, and many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. 
Okay, so just want you to get this in your mind. When you're reading through Scripture, it's so important not to just see words on a page. These were real people, real moments, real experiences that we want to try our best to get into. Um, and so we can use our imagination. I'll be clear uh, what's not in the text because I do have a very vivid imagination. But uh, So here, this people, I want you to just imagine the most crowded place you've ever been. I'm talking about like shoulder to shoulder, feel the heat, smell the smells. You know who I'm talking about. There's always somebody in the crowd that you're like, oh gosh, how long are we going to be here? So they're in this very crowded place. It's completely packed indoors. I don't know if there's like people touching Jesus or if he has a little circle of space. Very tight, so tight that people are outside the door as well. And not even just outside the door, but like, like piled up outside the door. So it says you can't even get close to the door. So I don't know how many people are in this scene or exactly how big the house was here, uh, but it's a very tight, very packed scene. And if you're a person who doesn't like to be claustrophobic, you're probably really uncomfortable thinking about that right now. So there it was. And what is Jesus doing in this moment? It says he's preaching the word to them. Why do you think all these people are gathered? They want to see some of these signs. They've heard about the miracles Jesus can heal. Like, I don't know if you've ever thought about, Jesus could heal any disease, any problem with any person from any situation at any moment of time. That's incredible to think about. Like, he didn't have to pre-screen people and to be like, oh, I haven't really seen that. I don't know. I'm going to have to think about that one. Like, he he didn't screen anybody. They just came to him, and whatever was wrong, on the spot, Jesus could heal it. Like the power of what he could do. And if that was true, if there was someone in Sioux Falls today that's just healing people and like there's no mistaking it, like go and watch, it it happens, you would want to see that. Like, man, I want to check that out. Like, I don't know who he is or if he's legit, but I'd like to see that. And so people are coming. They want to see what this guy's about. And I love that it doesn't say in this particular passage that Jesus is healing anybody. Here in this passage, it says he preached the word to him. Jesus loved to heal people. That's why he did it. But his ministry wasn't just to come and physically heal people and give them whatever deliverance they thought they need. His ultimate priority was to come and to bring the gospel, as Mark 1.15 says. He came to bring the good news of God's truth to these people, to bring them back to God. And Jesus literally was there to do that, but his preaching ministry was central here. And that's his priority. And I want you to just, just, just a side note for a second about preaching. When Jesus preached the word of God, he viewed God's word as big preaching, as big of a miracle as he did of healing people of any disease or problem they had. He, he saw the preaching ministry as miraculous, that when you preach God's word, when you hear it, when you receive it, when the spirit of God works through it, something miraculous happens. And this morning as we read God's word, we're not just giving a talk. We're not just going through a text. The spirit of God is doing something miraculous in you through me that I don't understand and I don't deserve him to do. But it's incredible. Jesus says, that is just as miraculous as if I healed you of your disease today. That God could take a heart that's dead and cause it to beat for him. That God could take a life that's completely dead in sin and resurrect it to life in Christ. That God could take eyes that were completely blind and open them to see his beauty and his glory and to worship him with their hearts. Jesus saw preaching as miraculous. And so just, just a side note. So he's preaching the word to him to them, and it says this in verse 3, And they came, 
bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. Now, we don't know. There may be more than five guys here. The text says they came, um, so it's possible. But there's at least five guys here. And they come and they bring Jesus, this, paralytic, this paralyzed man. Uh, most likely, they're carrying him on a bed that's you know, just kind of like a, a rug or something. be a good mental picture. Um, one guy on each corner. And I want you to just think about carrying a paralyzed person. Like, if you, how many of you have kids in here? I do. That's kind of like, I don't know if I should even mention that. Um, that's good. Well, I hope you do. We praise God for kids. So have you ever, like, when you're holding your child and they throw a tantrum and they go boneless? Do you know what I'm talking about? And all of a sudden they weigh, like, 20 pounds more. And I'm just like, what happened? Like, it's supernatural what happens. And we have a 15-month-old. And she does this all the time, and it's incredible. Every time I'm like, this is amazing. So these guys are carrying this paralyzed man on this mat. And, I mean, he's heavy. And you're talking about the Middle East. We don't know what time of year it was, but I just imagine like, like it's hot. You're carrying somebody. Who knows how far they had to go? And they come up. They get to the house. It says, um, here's this guy, this paralytic guy, can't do anything. Uh, he's desperate for healing. They, they come with this expectation, we're going to meet Jesus, and he's going to change this man's life. Our friend is going to be healed today, and it's going to be awesome. And they're desperate because they say there's this one guy. And we don't know him, we don't know a whole lot about him, but he has the power to do this if we can just get him to Jesus. And so in verse 4, these guys put all they have into it. They carry him up to the house. And it says, and when they could not get near him because of the crowd. So they get to the house, expectant hearts, excited about what they're going to see Jesus do. And what do they find? Man, tickets went on sale a lot sooner than I thought they did. Like, like, how are we supposed to get up to the door? Like, how did all these people, like, we have no chance. And I'm sure there was some conversations happening. Like, like, they're holding this guy who knows how heavy he is. And they're like, excuse me, hello, can we get by, please, somebody? The crowd just ignores them. Shoulders, shoulders turn, like, stop. We're, like, they can't get through. There's too many people. And they're looking around, like, what are we supposed to do? They can't get there. And I want you to just think about this for a minute because this is a really interesting moment, you have these, these people that are so focused on the teaching of Jesus that a man comes that's been crippled for who knows how long, who has intense pain and suffering in his life, who's desperate to get to Jesus, and they look at him, and what do they do? No. They don't care anything about him. And they just shut him out and continue to focus on Jesus. And now these, most of these people are just checking Jesus out. But I just think this is a really interesting moment for us to think about as the church. Is it so easy for us to look like that? It's so easy for us to say, like, we've got this spot with Jesus, and it's awesome, and we're focused on him, and oh, this is just a holy place, and there's hurting people that we are ignoring. That cannot be who we are. That should not be said of the church. We are not people that hinder anyone from coming to Christ. If we truly love Jesus, if we truly see him, if we truly worship him, we ought to be a community that brings people to him. So just another side note. But here they find they cannot get to the crowd. No pity, no way through. So it says this in in, uh, the end of verse 4. So they removed the roof above him. So regardless of the lack of compassion, there's no way through. And these guys, 
are determined to get to Jesus. I mean, they, here, obviously, they're, they're not only determined, they're desperate. Like, we're going to do anything. We're going to do whatever it takes to get this guy to Jesus. And, and they're willing, literally, I mean, to tear up somebody's house in order to get him here. And I think it's just this moment of desperation. Have you ever felt that feeling of absolute desperation? We're like, you, I'll do anything. I've got to, I've got to get this. I have to do this. Um, so I was thinking about this, that this past week. And the first time that I can remember in my life ever feeling like that, that feeling of absolute do anything you have to do kind of desperation. Um, I was tubing at my grandparents. Uh, they used to have a cabin when I was growing up uh, in Greer's Ferry, Arkansas. Uh, and so I was probably about 10 years old here, and, and I'm on this tube, and I don't know if you have a family like mine, but whenever you go tubing, the whole goal is, like, get them out to the side, and it's fast as you can once they get out there and like send them shooting like that's the kind of people I grew up with and so I'm on the tube and I'm just thinking like okay I gotta come up with a strategy and so my thought uh, was hey I'm gonna like climb way up on the tube I'm gonna wrap my arms in these straps and I'm just gonna hold on as tight as I can see if you can get me off the tube and so uh, here we go and so the boat starts going and what do you think it does the first thing it goes straight underwater and what probably lasted about 10 seconds in my memory, and you can't tell me differently, is about 45 minutes. And so I'm under the water for 45 minutes here. And, and we're under the water, and like what, immediately I realized, like, this is a, I'm not where I should be. This was a huge mistake. I'm trying to get go, I, let go. I can't. The water pressure is holding my hands. I'm like pulling, kicking, everything I can do. And the water's in my face. I'm literally, this is it. I'm going to die here, and I'm freaking out. And obviously the end of the story was I did make it. Um, but, but that feeling, it's like I was like 10 years old. I still remember that like it was yesterday because of that feeling of desperation. Now I want you to think about this. This man and his friends right here, they have that kind of desperation to get to Jesus. Have you ever felt that kind of desperation to get to Jesus? I have to. There's not a plan B. There's not another way. I don't know where else to go. It's impossible unless, Jesus, do you know that desperation in your soul for Jesus? So don't miss the importance of these guys here in this paralytic's life. I mean, these four guys that he has, how awesome are they? I mean, number one, they carry him all the way. Um, I mean, who knows, like we said, how far they had to go. And carrying, carrying this paralyzed man would have been tough in and of itself. But they're so concerned for their friend. They're so desperate for their friend to get to Jesus. They'll do anything for him. And man, what a great reminder to us about what it means to be a Christian. To have people in our lives, that's who we're supposed to be to them. That we're desperate not only for ourselves to get to Jesus, we've already come to Jesus. If you're a believer today, somebody brought you to Jesus. I don't know if that was a friend, a, a parent, a grandparent, a school teacher, a pastor. Somebody brought you to Jesus. And that's the kind of people we need to be for our friends and our neighbors and our coworkers. Not people who just say, man, that's terrible that you're going through that. But people that are so desperate to say, I want to get you to Jesus. That's what you need. And I'll do anything I have to do to get you to Jesus. Because in reality, what our friends and our family and our neighbors and our coworkers, what they need is not just advice. They need Jesus. They don't just need your opinion. They don't just need your helping hand. They need the Savior. And there's only one 
and his name is Jesus Christ. That kind of desperation for other people who don't know him, to get them to him, we need to have that. So these guys are all in, but there's still one problem. As, as desperate, as determined as they are, there's still too many people. How are we going to get him to Jesus? So I love this. Somebody comes up with a plan here. And so you've got at least, I don't know if the paralytic had a voice in this or not, if they're like, you stay out of this. Like, we'll figure this out. <laughs> like, I don't, I don't know if that happened or not. But so there's at least, at least some discussion happened here because you know this was not plan, plan A. This was not the first thing. So they're like, just imagine this. They're at the crowd and they're just thinking like, no, we came this way. We've got the guy on the mat. Like, we're going we're gonna to get to Jesus today. Did you check around back? Yes. No doors, no windows, nothing. No, no way in. Okay, and we've already asked to get through, and they won't let us through. Like, what other options are there? And so some guy, like, I love this guy. He's like, I've got an idea. So there's some stairs in the back. What if, we, what if we pulled him up on the roof, dug through it, made a big hole, and led him down to Jesus? Okay. <laughs> Uh, I did not think about that one. Uh, Samuel, that was a good, that's a good try. Um, but I guess no one else had another plan. So they were like, I mean, and then he said, so you got to defend yourself when you throw out an idea everyone thinks is dumb. You're like, well, do you have a better one? Don't just shut my idea down. Give me a better one. And nobody does. And so he's like, then let's give it a shot. So I like just, I don't know how they got him up the stairs, like if, how steep they were. Maybe they were thinking to themselves, like, I mean, what's, what's the worst case scenario? He falls and dies. Maybe Jesus can raise the dead. Like, we'll see, we'll see what happens, right? I mean, like, I mean, I mean, it's already, anyways, I'm not going to go any further on that one, but <laughs> that one feels like a rabbit hole. Um, but anyway, so they get there and so somehow they get this guy up these stairs and onto the roof. But then, so like the average or typical Jewish house was a one-story house um, and the roof would have been like you'd have your beams made out of wood and then little sticks in between and then you'd pack it with with mud and grain and straw like all together real thick all the way across and then the the sun would bake it and make it really hard and a one interesting thing um, is that they're in Capernaum, which is a really well-to-do fishing town. So not only did they just have this mud roof, that was typical for Jewish homes, but most likely they had, as, as um, some of the other gospel writers add some other details, um, but most likely they had tiles on the roof as well. Um, so if they would have had tiles, and you're talking about, I mean, at least probably six to eight inches of hard-baked mud that would have been hard as a rock, and then tiles on top of that. So they get the guy up there, and then the problem comes in, how are we going to do this? Like, we've got to find Jesus. Like, where's Jesus in the house? What if you did the wrong room? Like, <laughs> I thought about that the other day. I was like, that would be crazy. Oh, man, there's nobody in there. <laughs> um, but anyway, so they find the right spot, and um, they start to dig. And, I mean, it's a huge endeavor. And most likely, again, probably like the middle of this hot day in the Middle East. So now think about it from down inside the house. So Jesus is preaching. And it's a great sermon. You know, Jesus was the best preacher that's ever lived and ever will live. Think about his sermons for real. Like, nobody's ever, like, been as great an orator, as good at understanding God's word and applying it. I mean, you're talking about the best sermon you've ever heard in your life. You're in it. You're like, this is awesome. He is killing it. And then, like, debris starts to fall from the ceiling. And, like, it's not about a baby crying anymore. Like, light starts to shine in from the ceiling. It's like, hold on. What is happening? Right now, and the hole gets bigger and bigger, 
And I'm sure like his, his, like this being mud and dirt and those kinds of things, I'm sure it made a huge mess. And uh, so you just have like stuff falling everywhere. And, and Jesus and the crowds, I would most likely assume, the text does not say any of this, I would most likely assume that there's some silence at this point as everybody's contemplating the same thing. What on earth is happening? <laughs> and so this huge hole, how big of a hole do you have to make in order to lower an, a grown man on a bed down to the floor? A pretty big hole. And so how long it took is another thing. Like It's like, oh, wow, this is going to take some time. <laughs> so they start lowering this guy down. And, they're, and at that moment, they realize at least the situation. Like, here's a man that's paralyzed and so desperate to get to Jesus that they made a hole in the roof and are lowering, basically mission impossible this man down. And uh, then there he is. And it says, and when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And I love this, as you just take that moment in, hopefully you can kind of feel like one of the crowd now. And you're seeing this, and it's just like, what on earth is Jesus about to do? And so it says this in verse 5. And when Jesus saw their faith, not when Jesus was like, what are you doing? Are you out of your mind? That's illegal. You can't just cut holes in people's roofs. It's not cool, man. He didn't say anything. What does he say? It says, and when Jesus saw their faith, Look at what these guys just did. Look at the determination and the desperation that, that, they, that they've got to get to Jesus. And when he sees that, do you know what he calls that? He calls that faith. These guys have a plan A, wholehearted faith. There's no Jesus or something else. It's Jesus alone. And Jesus sees that as they lower this man down. He calls it faith. And it's not just the paralytic. It's also the men that are with him. Jesus sees this group of men and he, it says he saw their faith. So unlike so many of that day that were there just checking Jesus out, here's a group of guys that are not there to check Jesus out. They're there to cast everything on him and say, if you can't do it, nobody can. And so I have a question for you this morning. Why are you here this morning? Why are you following Jesus? Are you checking things out? Are you curious? Or is he your plan A faith? Are you saying, Jesus, everything rests, everything banks on you. Without you, I've got nothing. So Jesus sees their faith, and he sees the need for this man to be healed. But what we're about to see is Jesus sees something very different as well. He sees something this man needs that's much deeper and much more important than just physical healing. See, the, the paralytic assumed this day, I've made it. I mean, he's at the feet of Jesus, and he knows this is my moment. I've caught everyone's attention, obviously. This is the moment. Jesus is going to heal me, and my life is going to be back together. Finally, I'm going to have what I've been dreaming about. Finally, I don't have to depend on everybody to do everything for me. Finally, I can walk down the street. Finally, I can go to the grocery store by myself. Finally, I can be a human being like everyone else. And he looks at Jesus, and he's like, here it is. And he assumes if I get this right now, everything that I want is going to happen. My dreams are going to come true. If I get this one thing, that's what I really need. And I wonder this morning what that is for us. I wonder this morning if you're thinking to yourself, if I can just get that job, if I can just get in the door, if I can just get that promotion, 
If I could just have a baby, if I could just get married, if I could just have that relationship, I wouldn't be so lonely. Life would be like it's supposed to be. If I just had that one thing, everything would be just like it's supposed to be. That want in his soul when he comes to Jesus. With all eyes on Jesus, what does he do? Look at the next part of verse 5. It says this. He said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. That's not what anybody expected to come out of his mouth. Jesus looks at this man in this situation. It's obvious what he's there for. Jesus says, son, not sir, but son. Like he has authority over him. Like he's a child. He says, son, your sins are forgiven. Now here's the thing. This man's ultimate problem in this story was not just a physical problem. It was deeper than that. And if Jesus had just given this man healing from his paralysis, I promise you, he would have jumped up, he would have been ecstatic, he would have ran out that door, and he would have been so grateful, Jesus healed me. But he still would have had a much bigger problem. He would have had a temporary healing, but a much deeper problem. But what we see about Jesus in this text, we see that Jesus wanted something better for this man than what he wanted for himself. And that's the good news of the gospel for you this morning. I realize we all have this deep need in our souls that we think that's the one thing, but Jesus loves you too much to just give you what you want. He wants to give you what he wants for you that's infinitely greater, infinitely better. So if Jesus had healed this man, he still would have had a much bigger problem. I want you to imagine if you go to the doctor and you're feeling just a severe lack of energy. And some of you here this morning are like, yes, that's my illustration. Let's go. So you're feeling an extreme lack of energy. You go to the doctor like, I just am tired all the time. I don't know what's going on. I just, I want to get that fixed. And the doctor says, okay, well, let's, let's do some looking into that and, and check some stuff. And, and let's say that he runs a, runs a test and, and begins as he starts to find these results. He sees that you have a much deeper problem. You're not just tired. You have cancer which can be a major symptom of, of cancer, extreme fatigue. And as you hear that, no good doctor is going to say, but hey, let's not worry about, don't worry about the cancer stuff. Let's really focus on your energy. Like, let's really think that through, because being tired is terrible. You know, I know what that feels like. It's terrible. That would be a terrible doctor. And that's not at all what he's going to do. What's he going to do? Hey, I know you didn't come in here to talk about this, but you have a much deeper need. And if we don't address this, you're just going to be hyper to the grave. And we have got to deal with the cancer. And that's what Jesus sees here. He didn't just come to give us what we think we need most. He came to give us what we actually need most. Because our greatest problem is not our circumstances. This morning you may have come in today feeling overwhelmed by something that's going on in your life. And you're thinking, that's the greatest problem for me. Whether that's your health, whether that's something at work, whether, whether you've experienced something terrible, whatever it is, your circumstances, that's not your greatest problem. Our greatest problem is not sickness. Our greatest problem is not even death. Do you know what your greatest problem is this morning? Your sin. And that's the reality, and that's the scariest part, is that we hear that and we may or may not agree. 
is that we may hear that and say, yeah, but. And that's the point of what we're talking about. That's the reality of what we feel when we just want what we want. But the reality here is this man's problem was not a health problem. It was a holiness problem. Because sin separates you from the God that created you. And from the life that he's created you for. And sin, it ravishes, ravages and, and destroys and it damages everything. And ultimately, because of sin, one day it will lead us to be judged by a holy, righteous, and just God. And if this man walked away from his paralysis but wasn't justified and made right to walk with God, he has nothing. He has a few years to walk before he's eternally condemned for his sin. Jesus said, I did not come to give you something superficial. I did not come to give you just what you want. I came to give you what you need. Jesus came to satisfy our deepest need and to transform our greatest wants. In this moment, Jesus wanted this man to understand that the freedom that he brings is not superficial, it's not temporary, it's ultimate, it's real, it's deep, and it's eternal. And in one breath, Jesus looks at this man on the ground and he says, Son, your sins are forgiven. He declares him completely forgiven, completely justified, completely righteous with God. Think about the power of that moment. How awesome was this moment. This man came and never dreamed that he could have that standing with God this day. In verse 6, this is where it gets interesting. Now some of the scribes were sitting there, questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? So these scribes, the, the religious leaders of the day, experts on the law of God, they hear Jesus say, your sins are forgiven, and immediately they're enraged. Immediately these guys are like, you can't do that. You can't forgive sins like God. Think, imagine if you and a friend have a fight, and, and I mean, they hurt you really bad. I mean, they, they do something extremely uh, difficult uh, or extremely bad to you, and then I walk up and tell your friend that, hey, I forgive you. It's fine. You would look at me and say, you go away. You have nothing to do with this. Uh, that's the point. Nobody can forgive sin but God because it's against him. And you can't just step in and say, hey, it's fine. It's fine. You're not God. I don't care what you think. You're not God. And that's what they look at Jesus when he says this. And they're like, you can't do that. You can't tell him his sins are forgiven. You're not God. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And then here's where, like, the, this, the, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, the, goodness, it's not there. Anyways, I'll just track a different way. It's gone. I can't even find it. So the, um, the punishment, and we'll use that one. The punishment for what Jesus just did seemingly was death. Blasphemy was not a light crime. Uh, blasphemy was a very serious, uh, very serious breaking of the law. So there's three different levels uh, of blasphemy that the scribes would have understood. First would have been uh, speaking evil of the law of God. So saying something evil about God's word, his commandments against the law. Uh, more serious than that was speaking evil of God himself. Uh, so if you take the Lord's name in vain, those kinds of things, say something against God. But even more serious than that, Claiming divine and equal authority with God. And when Jesus says, son, your sins are forgiven. 
There's no confusion. There's no mistaking what he just what he just said. They want to clear it up with like, how can he say that? Um, surely he knows what, what that means. But when Jesus forgave this man's sin, he claimed divine authority as God to do so. This was a big deal. In verse 8 it says, And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? So he knew exactly what he said. And he doesn't apologize here. He doesn't, he doesn't say anything uh, about like, hey, maybe you guys misunderstood me. Um, I certainly didn't mean it to come across that way. He doesn't defend himself, not at all. But this moment wasn't just for the paralyzed man. It was for everybody in that crowd. Jesus was making something clear about who he is and what he came to do, that he was not just another teacher. He was not just another prophet. He was not just another person on the scene. He was God himself come to reconcile people to himself. And so in this moment, we see that Jesus didn't just come to help us, but he came to heal us in a deeper way than we could ever imagine. So in verse 9, Jesus, knowing what the scribes are thinking, it tells us. Verse 9, he, he looks at them and he says, Which is easier to say to the paralytic? Your sins are forgiven? Or to say, rise, take up your bed, and walk? So the reality on, on the surface there, I mean, it makes sense. Jesus says, hey, like, which one of these is easier to say? I can say those words right now. Your sins are forgiven. I have no proof of that if it's true. There's no way to, to validate that or verify it. But if, I, if you were a paralyzed man and I said, get up and walk, then that would all of a sudden add something to the conversation. It's like, okay, well, hang on. If he just healed him and he said that's true, maybe he actually can. And so that's Jesus' point here. Which one of these it's easier to say. And then in verse uh, 10, he says this, But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Jesus says, I want to prove to you that I'm not misspeaking. I'm not just throwing words out. I want to prove to you that something brand new is here. Somebody who can change everything about your life, everything about your standing with God, someone who can change absolutely everything is right here. Here's how you know that I have the authority to do it. I'm going to tell this man right here. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. Now this phrase, one other, one other thing I want to show you real quick. This phrase, son of man, this was by far Jesus' favorite title for himself. Uh, the other gospel writers use different titles more often, but Jesus uses son of man to describe himself more than any other title. Over 80 times throughout all four gospels, and over 14 times in the gospel of Mark. And what Jesus is not, he's not just saying, I was born of Mary, so I relate with you as a human. That's true. Jesus is fully God and fully man. So he's the son of man in the sense that, yes, he can relate to you as a human being. But it's more than that. And in Daniel chapter 7, uh, here's what it says. And this is what Jesus is referring to. And behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. This is not a coincidence. Jesus calls himself son of man and says, I have authority on earth to forgive sins. He is proclaiming to be the ruling king that's been prophesied throughout the Old Testament. 
the, prophet, the, the prophecy here that Daniel prophesied, he says, that's me. I'm the son of man. But Jesus says, so that you'll know that these words are not empty. And he looks at this man and he just says a word. He says, get up, get your mat, and walk out. Now, if you were going to heal someone of paralysis today, like you would imagine like there's got to be like some touching, like I got to like put my hand on his leg or something, or like pray or do some kind of incantation, something else. Jesus just says it. Get up, pick up your mat and go home. That's it. And he's healed from paralysis. Like that's a really big deal. I want to add a little bit, uh, a little layer to this uh, that's very interesting. This is a very personal um, seen to me. About uh, 2014, um, I woke up with a migraine, and it was so bad. I went to the, the doctor, which tells you it was really bad. I don't go to the doctor very often. And, um, and so they, the symptoms I had, they sent me to the ER, and they said, we think you have meningitis. Uh, so I went, went to the ER, and uh, the short story of it is within 24 hours, I did not have meningitis. I had an autoimmune attack called transverse myelitis. And within 24 hours, I was paralyzed from here down, completely paralyzed for several weeks. I couldn't move my toes. I couldn't wiggle my knees. I mean, from the chest down, I was completely paralyzed. If you touched my leg, I, I could feel it, but I had no ability to move my legs at all. I was completely dependent on the people around me, completely dependent on Christy. Um, she was probably my best, not probably, forgive me for saying that, Christy. She was my best nurse. Uh, I edited the other part out. That doesn't count. Um, but she, I mean, it was just a really hard, confusing time, and we didn't know what was going on. The really strange part that I never imagined would happen is over the course of a few weeks with not using your legs at all and being paralyzed, my muscle from here down completely atrophied. And when I, when I say completely, I, I mean it. Uh, I was a pretty healthy 27-year-old. And when we got home from the hospital, and I, I didn't stand, but I kind of was in front of the mirror where I could just see, I was skin and bones. I couldn't stand up. I had no muscle at all on my legs. It was unbelievable. And it took me about two years to learn how to walk again, to rebuild the muscle on my legs, and to go through this whole process uh, of recovery. And, and praise the Lord that he healed me over time because most people that have that, that particular illness uh, either don't walk again or don't survive. It was, it was a very incredible thing that God did for me. But when I read this story, and here's a man paralyzed, I think about the fact that if he's been paralyzed for more than like a few hours, he has no muscle. He physically cannot stand up. And so when Jesus says this, the healing that happens is absolutely astounding that this man can get up and stand on his two legs without the help of anybody. Not only that, he can bend down and pick up a mat and he can carry it and he can walk out of the crowd. Jesus didn't just heal him a little bit. He didn't just be like, hey, stand up and like, give me like five minutes. He's healed. It was a complete, total healing and it never went away. This guy was healed for the rest of his life. Like, that's an incredible thought behind Jesus' healing. And all he did was say, get up. I hope you hear that this morning. The power of Jesus' word. The power of our Savior. What he can speak and what he can do. He has absolute, unrivaled authority to heal. And if that's true, if that's true, what is the reality for this man's internal state? 
If he can get up and he's totally healed and he's so excited, oh my goodness, I can stand up. What does that say about his relationship with God? Because remember, this story didn't start with, son, your legs are healed. This story started with, son, your sins are forgiven. And if Jesus has the authority to heal like that, how much greater is his authority to heal your relationship between you and God? To completely wipe away your sin. One of my favorite theological words. Oh my goodness, I shouldn't have said it. I was like, I felt it leaving my brain. That happens to me a lot. I have to write a lot of things down. I forget things. Expiation. Thank you, Lord. Um, Expiation. I love it that your sin is not just like removed from you and put in a jar. And that one day when you stand before God, he's going to be like, hang on. I still have them. But what that word means is that your sin has been completely removed from you. And that if you've placed your faith in Christ and he says your sins are forgiven, they are gone forever. They cannot be brought back. They will not be brought back. Romans 8.1 says there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That is good news. That's what Jesus is talking about. A better healing, a deeper healing. One that changes everything. Now this man, in verse 12, it says, And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all. So at the command of Jesus, this this man, who couldn't do anything for himself, all of a sudden feels his legs, feels his toes moving, starts to move his legs and, and stands up. A man picks up his mat and he starts to walk through this crowd. And now what's amazing here is the crowd doesn't stop him this time. They, I'm sure it was like the Red Sea. They were just like, hey, here you go. Sorry about earlier. Uh, uh, like everybody, when he walks out at that point, everybody's minds are shifted like, this is amazing. This is incredible. And it says they glorified God. Uh, they glorified God saying, we never saw anything like this. This man was never known again as the paralytic. He was never again labeled and identified as that man who is paralyzed. From this day forward, he had a completely different identity because of Jesus. Because of this encounter with Jesus, he had a brand new name. And I hope you know this morning that when you give your life to Christ, the same is true for you. I don't know what you've carried with you your whole life, but I want you to know when you come to Christ, you get a new name. And your name is no longer addict. Your name is no longer shame. Your name is no longer, I can't believe you did that. Your name is no longer failure. But this man didn't just get a name that's like unparalyzed or I can walk. He got an infinitely greater name. This man walked out, not just just because he could physically walk now. He walked out called Son of God. He walked out called forgiven for all eternity. He walked out called truly healed. And in Christ, that's your name. Completely forgiven. Saved. Child of God. Redeemed. Eternally healed. And it can never be taken away from you. That's the name you carry now because of who Jesus is. So what's the people's response here? We've never seen anything like this. This is unbelievable. They have this encounter with Jesus that day. And I hope and pray that even in this moment, that these people weren't just amazed at the action they saw, but that they encountered who Christ was in such a way that they were never the same. And that's my prayer for you this morning. As you see this Jesus, the one who has that kind of power, man, I hope that you're not the same. 
I hope that you're not just like, yeah, Jesus, that's nice. And after Sunday, we'll move on. And maybe next Sunday we'll pick him back up. But I hope this encounter with Christ leaves you different, leaves you worshiping, leaves you like these people. We've never seen anyone like you. I want to show you guys one final thing. In verse 9, Jesus uh, asked that question, which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven or rise and pick up your bed and walk? Now the words themselves, it was easier to say, your sins are forgiven because there's no way to validate that. But in reality for Jesus Christ, I want you to know that was not the easier thing to say because Jesus knew the cost of proclaiming the forgiveness to that man. And what they did not know that day, we do know. We know the end of the story. We know where Jesus was heading. He wasn't just heading to the next town, he was heading to the cross. Colossians says this, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. The reason that Jesus could proclaim forgiveness to this man was because he was literally on his way to take his place. Jesus Christ is the one who proclaimed forgiveness because he was nailed to a cross to purchase it. And he wasn't held there just by metal, by rope, by physical restraints on the cross. Colossians tells us he was held there by sin. That he was literally paralyzed with your sin and my sin so that we could forever walk in freedom with God. And he purchased true freedom and forgiveness that we would forever be transformed and brought into the greatest joy in the universe, knowing and enjoying and treasuring God in a real relationship, in a restored, reconciled relationship. Jesus came to satisfy our greatest need and to transform our greatest wants with himself. That's the power of what's happening in this passage. So I want to challenge you guys this morning, and then we'll move into a time of response together. I want to challenge you, don't settle As you think this morning as we began with, what's that one thing in your life? Man, I hope that you see Jesus wants something better and greater for you. He wants you to have him. He wants you to know him, to experience his glory and his beauty, to see his authority and his power and his goodness and his faithfulness. He wants you to experience him and to know him and to enjoy him. So don't settle your life on temporary fleeting things. Don't give your heart to just other things. Give your heart to the one who matters above everything. That's what Jesus is calling you to today. That's what an encounter with Jesus is about. It changes the way you see everything else. To say, Jesus, you are better. You are what I need. You are what I want. And he's the one who does that work. Let's pray together. Father, this morning we thank you for your word. God, we thank you for the power of your word. That every time we speak, 
God, every time we read it, every time we, we sit under the preaching of your word, God, that you stir and you move and you change and you convict. God, you raise the dead, you heal the blind and the deaf. God, you change lives for all eternity. And we can't miss this morning. That is because of what Christ has done for us. Everything is different today because of Jesus. And I pray for my friends here today, God, that they would encounter him. For those who may not know you that are here today, Father, I pray, God, that you would God, draw them, that they would run to Jesus. For those who do know you, God, I pray that you would encourage them and take their eyes off of this world and set them wholly on Christ above all things. As we move into this time of response, God, would you continue to speak into our hearts and continue to draw us and lead us to respond by your grace. Thank you for your goodness this morning. Thank you for your speaking into our lives. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.